So here is the summary. At the beginning, the, the talk will have three parts. The first one, uh, very classically, we start with the empirical science. I'll show you a, sh a short film on the psychology of motivation. It's a film that was actually uh, produced in one of my research projects by psychologists who worked in my research group. And after that little film, I talk about philosophy, two philosophical models of authenticity, the discovery model and the decision model. And then the questions will be, question will be asked uh, whether an authentic life will not only lead to well-being and intrinsic motivation, but whether an authentic life is also a meaningful life. And then I will switch over to the third part, which will then a Christian and theological part. I will, I will look at two religious figures. The first one is the founder of the Jesuits. I'm a Jesuit myself, St. Ignatius of Loyola. And then I will look, will look at the prophet Jonah um, and Ignatius for finding the meaning, uh, find, finding meaning in life by finding the will of God in the deepest desires of our own hearts and Jonah finding meaning by identifying with the will of God in a hero, heroic decision uh, that transcends himself. So that's, that's the basic um, summary of the, the talk. Well, um, let's see how I get. I have this. Okay. Um, and then the next one then would be the film. And if you have any trouble um, with the audio or anything, just let me know um, so that I can. Let's assume you've kissed a frog and he grants you one wish. One wish to cure one of the ails of mankind. Which one would you choose? Hunger? Illness? War? Of course the problem is, if you choose hunger, there will still be illness. And if you choose illness, there will still be war. If I had a wish, I would choose to cure demotivation. With a magic tool that allows us to motivate people whenever we need, we could motivate everyone to solve the most pressing problems of mankind. And we'd always have the maximum energy for it. But of course, there is no frog, no magic to cure demotivation. But there is a new model that helps us better understand the reasons for demotivation. Because it's much easier to find a cure if we know exactly why we are sometimes demotivated. The new model is pretty straightforward and easy to apply. Let me ask you some questions to demonstrate. What do you personally associate with the term head? You might answer mouth, ears and eyes, but most people also associate head with rational thinking, reason, what we find important. So then, what do you associate with the term heart? Heart is generally associated with emotions, feelings, sometimes intuition. 
In our research at the Technical University of Munich, head is related to our goals and our so-called cognitive preferences, what we find important. Heart is related to the unconscious, to our deeper motives as the source of our so-called affective preferences, what we really like. Scientific studies have shown that the overlap of the two circles is associated with harmony and well-being. So what happens when the two circles don't overlap, when either head or heart are left out? Studies have shown that discrepancies between head and heart reduce happiness, lead to stress and burnout, and they make it harder to reach our goals. In fact, research suggests even if you reach the goals that are not supported by your heart, you don't always feel happy. It's more like, so what? I've checked that box, what's the next goal? The problem is, if you do that for 20 years, pursuing unfulfilling goals that have nothing to do with your heart, you might end up getting to the stage where you say to your partner, honey, I'm just going out to buy a pack of cigarettes. And off you go, and you'd never be seen again. So how do we handle situations where head and heart don't fit together? This leads to another feature of this model, willpower. Well, yes, you're all familiar with the word willpower, but what exactly is it? When do we need willpower? And when don't you need willpower? Can you think of an example? Most people would say, I need willpower when things get difficult, when I struggle, when I need to motivate myself, when I don't like what I'm doing. But I don't need willpower if I like what I'm doing. So you could even say, you need willpower the moment your motivation stops. A lot of willpower is needed to finish big tasks, for example a marathon, especially to get through the last few kilometers. Now let's put this together with our head and heart model. Here, in this section, you need willpower. Head, but not heart. Something is important to you, but not supported by your emotions. For example, doing the dishes, pumping your bicycle tire, working overtime. These things are important, but they're not fun. I call this willpower type 1. Exerting willpower can mean motivating yourself with positive images. How happy will I be when the bike runs well again, when the work is being done? Type 2 willpower is needed here, in this section. Heart, but not head. The activity has your emotional support, but is not aligned with your cognitive preferences. We may experience this as a temptation. You would love to do something that is not good for you. Examples are excessive internet surfing, smoking cigarettes, cheating on your partner. These are tempting situations for some of us and we need willpower to deal with them. For instance, by imagining that you don't get your job done on time because you wasted it on the internet or that your partner found out about your infidelity. Here, in the overlap section, we don't need willpower because there is no internal conflict. Now, is willpower like some sort of miraculous tool? The magic that helps us overcome all sorts of internal conflict? If this was the case, we could basically ignore discrepancies between head and heart and just use the sheer force of our willpower. Well, unfortunately, this is not the case. Research has shown willpower can be ineffective. Think of how difficult it is to stick to a diet or to stop smoking. Willpower is strenuous. It is not pleasurable to not eat a tempting chocolate cake. Willpower is a resource, just like money, that can be depleted. Other researchers have introduced the metaphor of willpower as a muscle. The idea being that, just like a muscle that is sore after training, 
your willpower can be used up. So discrepancies between head and heart can use up our willpower. But what if there is a fit between head and heart? What can we expect here in the overlapping section between the two circles? The overlap says that what we find <coughs> important is also what we like. In other words, our cognitive and affective preferences are aligned. Indeed, this is the sector of our intrinsic motivation. I guess most of you are familiar with the concept of intrinsic motivation. We are intrinsically motivated when we do something for the sake of doing it, because we like it. In our figure, extrinsic motivation is this sector, head but not heart. We find something important because we expect some reward, but it's not fun to do it. As stated before, we need willpower whenever we are extrinsically motivated. So what is here in this sector? Heart, but not head. Here we like something, so it has a potential for intrinsic motivation. But since it is not aligned with our goals, we try to suppress it. So this is what we need to know about head and heart. But then there is a third component of our motivation, which can also be pretty important and shouldn't be neglected. Imagine the following scene. A guy is playing tennis. He seems highly motivated, so head and heart is not an issue here, but he keeps missing the ball. He likes what he does, he finds it important, but he still misses the ball. What would you say this tennis player is lacking? Exactly, he is lacking skills, abilities. So we need to add a third circle to the model. We call it hand to be consistent. Hand is also a metaphor with a broader meaning, skills, abilities, experiences, action-related knowledge. Head, heart and hand. This is actually quite an old triad. It goes back to Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi, a famous Swiss educator from the early 19th century. But of course, the comprehensive model is new. I call it the 3C model of motivation, the three components of motivation. The 3C model suggests that ideally all three components should be fulfilled. What can we expect if this is the case? What is the optimal motivation? Csikszentmihalyi, a Hungarian researcher who works in the States, studied people with high motivation. Tango dancers, chess players, surgeons. He asked these people, how do you feel when performing this activity? And he received pretty much the same answers from all. I am fully concentrated on my task, there is no self-monitoring, the time flies, I am in full control over the activity. Csikszentmihalyi called this experience flow and he suggested that flow is the secret to happiness. Research shows that it is most critical for flow that your heart is in it. Okay. Um. That's the first half of that video, but we won't need any more. Um, that's, so to speak, the empirical basis. And I switch back to my presentation. And again, please uh, let me know if something goes wrong, if you cannot. Um, Things are fine so far. Um, see it. Okay, we had the summary, um, yep. and now, so there are two models of the human soul. Um, Plato famously said that the ideal, at least of the human soul, is 
One, a person who is just, regulates well, but is really his own and rules himself. He binds together those parts and any others that there may be in between. And from having been many things, he becomes entirely one, moderate and harmonious. Only then does he act. That's basically the idea we just saw in the, in the video. Um, and Hume says, and it's a different model, nothing is more usual in philosophy, or he observes this, nothing is more usual in philosophy than to talk of the combat of passion and reason, and then to give the preference to reason and to assert that men are only so far virtuous as they conform themselves to the dictates of reason, of reason that should be. And if any other motive or principle challenge this direction of this, of this, his conduct, he ought to oppose it. So here the assumption is that to make progress in the development of my, um, in this model, which Hume describes here, um, to have really self-control, I have to be with willpower, as we had in the movie, be able to control all my appetites and desires and be reason governed. What we just saw in the video is that in modern psychology, we basically assume that there are two systems of information processing in the human brain. One is intuitive, the other one is analytical. One is automatic. The other one is deliberative. One is non-verbal and the other one is verbal. One is experiential and the other one is rational. That's the so-called two systems approach in information processing, which is widely accepted in cognitive psychology nowadays. And you saw it in that video we just watched that there is a rational system what was in the video, um, the head, which is primarily verbal. It operates in the domain of language, abstract symbols, processes. Uh, it, it processes information analytically and guides thought as well as action on the basis of logical reasoning. Because of its orientation toward delayed action, it's slower in processing, but very flexible. It changes more rapidly. It is closely tied to our conscious experience and is capable of future-oriented planning and also the long-term delay of action. Um, so grit uh, for, to, to pursue long-term goals, like getting a degree as you do. And then there's the other system, which in the video was the heart, which is the experiential system. In contrast, it processes information in a holistic, associative fashion. In a given situation, the experiential system guides thought and action on the basis of ongoing feelings, pleasure-oriented versus pain-oriented, prior effective experiences in similar situations. And by encoding percepts into images and metaphors, that's very important, we'll get back to this, keep that in mind, 
it encodes not in language, but it images and metaphors and narratives. The experiential system is close to the concrete perceptual reality of experience. And due to its orientation towards immediate action, it processes information more rapidly, but changes more slowly. And only after repetitive or intensive experience, it does change. Finally, this hard system, the experiential system operates mostly outside of our consciousness. So the explicit, we sometimes call the, the, the head, the rational system, our explicit motives. And it is constituted by an, a multitude of individual stable, of, a, of an individual stable language-based and consciously accessible belief about their needs and motivational orientations. It is our motivational self-image. So if you were asked why you are here, the answer that you would give me, I'm here to learn, I'm as part of pursuing my degree and so on, that's exactly what it is. So goals are defined as internal representations of desired future states that guide the individual's thoughts and actions and furnish their lives with meaning and, uh, and purpose. Moreover, explicit motives relate to external assessment, idealized selves, and inherited values from the environment. On the other hand, the heart system, the experiential system, that's what we call the implicit motivational system. It is determined by a relative small number of biologically based non-conscious motives or change uh, or needs that we can find in all humans across all cultures, in Asia, as well as in Europe or America, among children like, uh, and adults. McLelland famously defined these, these implicit motives as recurrent concerns for effectively charged incentives, such as doing something better or mastering or challenging a, a challenging task, which is the achievement motive, it's the first big motive, then establishing, maintaining, and restoring a positive relationship with others, the affiliation or intimacy motive, and finally, having impact on others or the world at large, the power and some motive, which is also the, the motive for autonomy. So in all of us, there are three basic motives, unconscious motives that drive us. The motive to, for really affiliation or relation, to be part of something which is bigger than myself, so that, for example, I work because I want to sustain my family and not just because I want to fill my bank account. Um, or religious motives are very much, very often those <clears throat> that I have because in religion, as the Latin word religio uh, already says, I want to be connected with something which is way bigger than myself. Um, the other motive out of the three is the achievement motive. 
I want to be capable of achieving something in life, reaching a goal. And the third motive is I want to be in charge of what I'm doing. I want to be autonomous and also I want to have power. Power over myself, but also power over others. And we find these three motives in all of us. And each one of them of us has a different profile of those. Some people are more power motive oriented. Some are more affiliation motive oriented. Some are more achievement motive oriented. So as we saw in the video, it's now important that we align our consciously in the head our consciously um, given goals in life with our internal motives. So that means that some people sometimes strive for goals that are congruent with their implicit motives. <clears throat> so a person high in implicit power motive who pursues many power goals in her daily life. While at other times they are committed to goals that are incongruent with respect to their implicit motive disposition. For example, a, um, a person with a low implicit power motive working on a career for a leadership position <clears throat> and thus striving for a power goal. Or a person with a high implicit power motive working in a low position in the hierarchy. Then we are lacking self-congruence uh, as we saw in the video, then we need willpower. Um, but <clears throat> this less, <clears throat> less <clears throat> sorry, this lack of self-congruence also is philosophically imp important. And now I'm leaving the realm of empirical science, empirical psychology, and I switch over to my second part and talk a little bit about philosophy before then in the third part talk give a religious application um, philosophically if i'm not um, self-congruent if there, there is no i no overlap between my implicit motives that is my heart and my explicit motives which is my head that is a lack of self, a lack of sense of self. Um, there is a dichotomy within the person. And the question now arises, if there is a dichotomy, which one of the two sides is my true self? As you know, Kierkegaard and many philosoph other philosophers after him, but even before asked the question, what is it? to discover one's true self. Well, it could be that if there's a conflict, for example, I'm pursuing a career, but I, I feel that I need so much willpower um, for pursuing this career, because in pursuing the career, I have to be alone. I have to exert a lot of power but really deep down, I'm an affiliation person. I'm a family person. I don't really want to spend all the time fighting the career, fighting to step up on the career ladder 
I've, I would rather be with my friends and family and having a good quality relational time. So I have that in my head, I want to be this career person. And in my heart, I want to be the family person. Who is it that I am really myself? What is my true self? That which I have given to me as a, as a goal in my head. So the explicit motives, the plans, the ideals, idealized self, or the implicit motives. There are two models of authenticity in philosophy. Um, and they depend on how you answer this question. If you believe that your real self is the hidden subconscious self of what you really want to do, independent of society, what society expects from you. Let's say you want to be a musician, but everybody, your parents tell you, you have to be a lawyer, um, but you have the deep desire to be for proficiency, for, for perfection, for competence in music. Um, if you believe, <clears throat> forget about what your, what your rationality tells you, what your <clears throat> parents tell you, what society tell follow your heart, that's the discovery model of authenticity. <clears throat> so the mostly <clears throat> unknown deep desires are my nature. The demands of society are mere alienation. The explicit life goals that I give to me have to adjust to the basic, uh, basic inborn needs. So the idealized self is, a, is an ideal created through the demands of society. Famous philosopher, psychologist Carl Rogers, for example, does not see it as something to strive for, the, self, the ideal self. For an individual to be truly happy and for self-actualization to be realized, the public self must be assimilated to the hidden self. This goes back to the philosopher who, who so who saw that there, we have a hidden nature and that's who we really are. And then there's the other model says exactly the opposite. If I want to be, and I have decided to be that business person, but my deep desires go into the family direction. I don't care about the deep desires because they are given to me by nature and they're not really mine. What, what is really me is what I have decided to do. So Sartre says the person lets herself to be driven, that lets herself to be driven by subconscious forces can never be authentic. That was his criticism of Freud. Or as he said, in human life, existence precedes essence. We make our essence. We don't find it in ourselves. We have no choice about our, about our innate basic needs but we, we self-actualize our free conscious choices. So for Carl Rogers, it is alienation to pursue your idealized self. For Sartre, it is alienation not to pursue your idealist, idealized self. So what is it? 
the decision model of authenticity, that's the Sartre model, seems to be like a combat model of the human person. My implicit motives have to be overcome if they contradict my explicit goals. Because in consciousness, I set myself and everything else has to be um, fought in, in, so that nature aligns to my self-creation. My self the discovery model will allow for more internal harmonies. It's, it's um, the discovery model of authenticity will allow for more internal harmony to live in accordance with one's deepest desires. But maybe we need both. Maybe sometimes we can detect in us an inner desire that will lead us to a meaningful life. Um, I should be L-I-L-I-F-E. Sometimes we have to act against our deepest desires. And that now leads me to the religious application. And that's also an, an example, um, gives more flesh and um, concreteness to the more abstract things I have just said about empirical science, psychology, and then a little bit of philosophy of authenticity. And now in our context, I apply this to two religious figures, Ignatius of Loyola on the left-hand side and the prophet Jonah on the right-hand side. Ignatius of Loyola spent months in bed after recovering from a leg wound. He was a very successful military man, a knight, um, and then, then he was wounded, wounded and caught, could no longer pursue um, his military career and was bedridden for months. He asked for some exciting novels to read, but there were only two books in the castle, a book of, about the life of Christ and one about the saints. Ignatius read them begrudgingly at first. And then he find himself, he would find himself daydreaming. And now that's very interesting, alternating between fantasies about pursuing the, the hand of a lady through chivalrous, that is the activities of a knight, uh, military activities um, on the one hand. So he would imagine himself as the, being this very famous and good knight fighting with the sword and impressing the ladies. And then after that, he would imagine what he had just had read in those books, um, if he would live like the saints. Um, he enjoyed both experiences. So he would, he would imagine to live like St. Francis um, or St. Dominic, St. Dominicus. Um, and he enjoyed both experiences of imagining uh, the, the, the life of a knight and the life of a saint. But he discovered that after imagining the life of a knight, he was left dry and sad. 
So there was an initial excitement, but after he had finished, he felt empty. When he imagined himself following Jesus as holy men like St. Francis and St. Dominic had done, his joy sustained long after the daydream was over. And he eventually just noticed that this difference um, was very profound and wrote in his autobiography decades later that this was his first spiritual insight. Well, why was that a spiritual insight? He discovered if, the, if he had that deep feeling of congruence, and there you see how it refers back to our psychological model, between his daydream that's in the head, that's something he consciously develops as an idea, and his deepest desires of the heart, that would be indicated by a long-lasting good feeling. And then he figured out that this is an indicator of what God really wants me to do. So God wants me to be an integrated person, an authentic person, and he has already given me the innate desires if I only let them out, so to speak, if I discover them um, to find what is really God's will. So, so there's two life goals, being a knight or being a soldier or a knight on the one hand and being living a life like a saint on the other hand. So that's Sartrean self-production, active, imagining who I could be. And he visualizes both life goals and evaluates the emotional response. That's the Rousseauan self-discovery. And the visualization leads to deeper and longer lasting well-being. And the one is, is the one of the goal that is in greater harmony with the subconscious basic needs. So authenticity can only be reached if the dialogue of the two centers of the mind is an ongoing process of mutual harmonization. And Ignatius discovered, since the heart doesn't understand language, you have to do it in images. You have to imagine the scene. Um, and that gives you access to your subconscious. And God talks to you via the subconscious. That was his spiritual insight. Very influential in the history of Christian uh, spirituality. So the method of finding harmony between one's deepest desires and one's life goals was for Ignatius, Ignatius a way to find meaning in life. He believed that God spoke to him through his emotions and deepest desires. Ultimately, he lived a successful and meaningful life. He was the founder of the Jesuits, as I said, and even became a saint himself. What he imagined became reality because he tapped into his deepest, deepest uh, motives. He is uh, painted by Rubens actually of um, Ignatius, um, 
the, the miracles of Ignatius, seeing how successful he became later in life um, and influential after he had found what he really cared about to express it in more modern terms of more, more modern philosophy, philosophical terms. But is it always like this? Many people hardly ever reach a harmonious inner balance. For many people, it is very typical that they feel torn. And can they live a meaningful life? In the Bible, we encounter several figures who are, who'd experience inner, inner conflict. I just picked one of them, Jonah. Uh, and he is this always tormented, tormented in, and dissatisfied in the whole story. I, if you don't know the story, I'll be re repeat it quickly in the next slide. Well, he obviously lived a meaningful life. He was a very successful prophet. He just entered the town of Nineveh once and he spoke only five words and the whole city repented and began to live a more, a less sinful life, a better Christian or a better religious life. So the painting here is famous one by Dali, the enigma of my desire, not harmonious. Just to remind you of the story, you will all have heard of it. Uh, God sent Jonah to Nineveh and asked Nineveh to ask Nineveh to repent. So the, the city was full of sinners, and Jonah was there to was sent there and asked the city to repent. But he didn't want to do it. He had, he had no motivation to do it. So there was inner conflict. So Jonah tried to escape from God. By ship, he tried to escape from God famously, and the ship encountered a terrible storm. And Jonah knew that God had caused the storm. So he asked the sailors to throw him into the sea so as they wouldn't have to die because of his conflict with God. So they did, but Jonah did not drown because God sent a whale to swallow Jonah. And then Jonah was not, not only in, in the ocean, but in the stomach of a monster. So this is like the deepest fall that is possible, the most horrible, horrible place. And this life of inner conflict had led Jonah not to happiness and self-congruence, but into a very terrible, tormented situation, full of fear. <clears throat> and in, this, <clears throat> in exactly this horrible situation, he then promises God that he now will listen to him and he will go to Nineveh and call upon the city to repent. So there is no inner harmony. There is inner conflict that led to catastrophe. But then, in a kind of heroism, I would say, he decides, I want to follow the word of God. And the word of God is going to be the 
guiding star of my life. And then God caused the fish to return Jonah to the dry land. And so Jonah lives up to his promise and he goes to Nineveh. He warned the people that they must confess their evil deeds to God. Otherwise, God would destroy their nation. And the people obeyed Jonah. And so God forgave the people of Nineveh. And God did not destroy Nineveh. It goes on a little more, but that's not all that important for our talk here. Um, so why there's no harmony here? Um, the psychological model we learned before doesn't seem to make much sense in these circumstances. Why did Jonah live a meaningful life? And in order to explain to you why Jonah led a meaningful life, I will give you, read you an insight or a little text from the greatest psychologist of motivation, which is Viktor Frankl, a survivor of the Holocaust. He was in the Auschwitz concentration camp. And I'll just give you a little quote from his book, um, uh, Men's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. There you see him and the title of the book. Uh, I think it sold 12 million copies. So that is, if you want to write a book that sells 12 million copies, then that was definitely a good book. Um, so here's a quote. Let me recall that which was perhaps the, the deepest experience I had in the concentration camp of Auschwitz. The odds of surviving the camp uh, will not... Uh, oh, some, uh, I made a mistake. Will not be more than one in 28. Sorry for the typo as can easily be verified by exact statistics. It did not even seem possible, let alone probable, that the manuscript of my first book, which I had hidden um, in my um, code when I arrived at Auschwitz. Um, so that's not code, but code, I don't know how that happened, would ever be rescued. Maybe I spoke that into the computer with the uh, language recognition. So sorry about that. So he had a code uh, and he hid a book in that code. Be that was the most important project of his life. His, his book he had been working on for, for years and he hoped that that would somehow survive Auschwitz. And the, the minute he arrived at Auschwitz, they took away all of his clothes. He was completely naked. And the book that was hidden in his clothes, his big project would simply be burned. Um, so he lost his mental child. And now he says, it seemed as if nothing and no one would survive me, neither a physical nor a mental child of my own. Because he would die in the concentration camp and the book was being burned. So I found myself confronted with the question whether under such circumstances my life was ultimately void of any meaning. Not yet did I notice that the answer to this question with which I was wrestling so passionately 
was already in store for me. And that soon thereafter, this answer would be given to me. This was the case when I had to surrender my clothes and in turn inherited the worn out drags of an inmate who had already been sent to the gas chamber immediately after his arrival at Auschwitz railway station. So he got this prison clothes uh, from someone who had already been killed. Instead of many pages of my manuscript, which he had lost, I found in the pocket of the newly acquired coat, that is spelled correctly, the newly acquired coat, one single page torn out of a Hebrew prayer book containing the most important Jewish prayer, the Shema Israel. Shema Israel, Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Listen, Israel. In the deepest despair, Frankel had to let go of all his words, all of his life projects, all his yearnings, and instead he simply had to listen. Listen, Israel. There's only one God, and that's your God, and that God is with you. So he writes then later in this book, in a situation like this, that seems to be hopeless, like the situation of Jonah, when you look for the meaning of life, it doesn't really make sense to find a harmony between your deepest desire and your life projects. But if, because you can't find it, the situation is hopeless. What was really needed in that situation was a fundamental change in our attitude toward life. We, that means the inmates of the concentration camp, had to learn ourselves. And furthermore, we had to teach the despairing people around us, and now it comes, that it did not really matter what we expected from life, what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of, of ourselves as those who are being questioned by life. So we need to stop asking about the meaning of life. We need to stop asking what we expect from life, but rather what life expects from us. And this is exactly what Jonah did in the moment of deepest despair, swallowed by a monster. He, um, he stopped asking what he desired, what was meaningful to him. He learned that sometimes it did not really matter what he expected from life, but rather what God expected from him. And in this moment, his life became meaningful and became because of his enormous efficiency, even though he was so tormented, in, internally, psychologically, he became one of the greatest prophets that turned around an entire city and saved it from destruct, destruction because he did no longer ask what 
he expected from life, but rather what God expected from him. So, yes, it follows that to sometimes there are situations in life where you ultimately find meaning not in some by searching about your deepest inner desires. Sometimes the de desires are leading you in the wrong direction. And sometimes <clears throat> the, whole, <clears throat> the, the whole situation for reason caused by humans is beyond hope to find meaning in it. For you as meaning as the pursuit of your life projects, like the book in uh, Frankel's code that was burned. And it is especially in those moments that we have to learn as Christians to ask, not what, I, what do I expect from life, but rather what does God expect from me? And it, it is in this turn, portrayed here in the picture on the left, that we can get rid of the chains of despair and find meaning by fully doing what God expects from us instead of following our own pursuits. So both aspects, the Ignatian aspects of following the deepest desires of your heart against the alienation of the environment, that the environment maybe tells you to do something, become rich, become famous, become influential, which you deep down really don't want to do. So then adjusting your goals to your deepest desires. Maybe your deepest desire is <clears throat> to be a creative person in the arts, is to be a person who wants to give herself <clears throat> or himself <clears throat> to others in a life of service, which doesn't lead to riches and influence and power. Ignatius will tell you, you find meaning in your life if you discover by listening to your emotions and working with your imagination, imagination about the deepest desires of the heart. So to find an ultimate harmony and that harmony comes from God. And then I finally said then sometimes in life, <clears throat> we don't find meaning this way. Sometimes the situation is just too complex and sometimes we are internally too torn to find a harmonious solution in ourselves like that. And then the figure of Jonah can be an example. Then it is important, Frankel would say, to stop looking at yourself and focusing on God and trying not to do, what I, not to pursue what I expect from life, but rather what God expects from me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So we are <clears throat> just in time. <clears throat>